bring up the screen, and once that's up, I will start. The reading, the scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Acts. It's actually from three different portions of one story. I decided that to read the entire story would be quite long, and so I broke it up into different sections. So if it doesn't seem to connect exactly right sentence-wise. That's why I'm jumping. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now I skip a little bit. Peter said, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And these are God's holy words for God's holy people. You know, Peter, Peter is one of my favorite disciples. I think he's the one um, I can relate to the best. Uh, Peter was the disciple who was constantly being rebuked by Jesus because he was always putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, Jesus was the one that denied Jesus three times and then heard the cock crow. And yet in the New Testament, Peter's role changes, and he becomes the cornerstone, the rock of the church, and is still considered it that way today. Uh, Certainly the popes in the Roman Catholic Church call themselves descendants of Peter as the rocks of the church. I found it interesting when I read the verse again this morning that I realized that Peter needed to be told three times about being able to eat what was unclean and profane. In my experience, it only happened once. That's what I remembered. And then I read it, and I thought, doggone it, he had to hear it three times again, uh, you know, just just to get it right. Um, But there's a significance to Peter's dream, and and, and that's for all of us. Uh, The importance of accepting that which is different, to grow the community. In the book of Acts... Peter spent most of his time converting people from Judaism to Christianity. And yet, by far, the majority of the stories in the Acts of the Apostles are the stories of Paul. And Paul went to the Gentiles. 
And that was not very popular with Peter and the other disciples that had remained in Jerusalem. And every now and then, Paul would get called back to Jerusalem, and I gathered those meetings would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall for, because I imagine they were not very pleasant, because Peter wanted Paul to be working with the Jews. And then he had that dream, and things changed. And of course, I guess I would consider all of us Gentiles, but we would be considered unclean or profane. Uh, So we're looking at a big change that took place, and yet it's a change that needs to take place even in the now. Sometimes we get caught up in our own faith denomination that we, we don't look beyond uh, what's outside of our doors. Uh, it's it's um, interesting, though, that I think of the different denominations that probably the disciples of Christ are the most open to welcoming people from other faith traditions. Uh, and, and, and is an important reason why my husband and I joined this church. My analogy of faith is of a pizza. Perhaps a very, very, very big pizza. And each one of us is a slice of that pizza. And when you put that pizza together, you understand what faith is all about. No one piece has the answers. It's all together that the answers start to come. And so we need to be in conversation with people whose spiritual journey, their faith journey, might be a little bit different from what we're comfortable with or what we understand. Well, for me and for some others of you, the past two weeks has been an experience of um, finding out how different people worship. And so I'll ask if we could go to the very first slide of what happened here just two weeks ago, the service in the street. We were there. It was awesome. Uh, There were five different churches that participated. Of course, First Christian, Trinity Methodist, St. John's Episcopal, Brown Street Methodist, and First Baptist churches. And within that service, each shared their own traditions. The sermon was marvelous, probably similar to what I'm saying today, that as we come come together with our differences, we grow. I wanted to share my own experiences. I've never been a Baptist. I've never been a Methodist. But for the first 50 years of my life, I was a devout Episcopalian. And so I wanted to share with you some of my thoughts of sitting through the service and what I was processing as as the time went on. First off, having Greg doing the prayer of consecration, the communion prayer, is unheard of. I was stunned in a most wonderful, wonderful way. Uh, that, That prayer is reserved for Episcopal priests and bishops and the archbishops and the Archbishop of Canterbury, and nobody else says that prayer mind you. And for Greg to say that prayer was really astounding to me, and it spoke wonders. Uh, I, after the service, I said to Jim, I said, what did you think of Greg doing that prayer? And he goes, man, that was just awesome. So re- it, it was neat. It, it, it was a good sign. It was a very, very, very good sign. 
being an Episcopalian means that the way Episcopalians worship can be very, it's extremely different from the way disciples worship. I'll give you two points. First off, um, I, as being born an Episcopalian, I was baptized as a baby, which is probably something very foreign to the rest of you unless you went through different faith traditions in your lives as well. Here at First Christian, as in many Protestant churches, baptism is a personal decision that happens when you get older. My, my nine-year-old grandson was just baptized a couple of months ago in his church, and it was his decision. What you do here is you dedicate a baby, and we all agree to raise that child as a congregation in the faith. In the Episcopal Church, those promises are made the same way, but you're also baptized at that time. Adults can be baptized also, but it's usually babies. But in the Episcopal Church, when a person reaches a certain age and makes that decision, they're confirmed. And what that means is you've made the personal decision to take on your baptismal vows. So there is some similarity in differences. The other difference is in communion. In the Episcopal Church, once the priest says the prayers over the bread and the cup, it becomes sacred. I'm not saying it doesn't become sacred here because I believe it does. But in the Episcopal tradition, the sacredness stays. So once communion is over, any bread or any wine that is left over is not thrown away. There's a special place you can put it. You can put the bread and hold it and use it again next week. Or you could take it out like we do when we take communion out to people who are uh, homebound. We take it from where it has been blessed. Um, when the service in the street concept first came together, which was years ago when Jack Snellgrove was here, uh, I was in charge of doing the communion, doing the, the bread and materials for communion, which in the Episcopal Church is wine, but I think we used grape juice in the service in the street. And I sat down in particular, normally on a Sunday, I would do a count of how many people were out there, and then that's how much I would pull out, maybe plus add maybe 10 or 20 more pieces of bread. So anyway, I had everything set about for about how many people were going to be at the service in the street. And at the very last minute, Joanne Williams came running out and said, I don't think we have enough stuff. And she brought out at least two big loaves of bread. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so anyway, we did the service. And of course, in the Episcopal tradition, I can't throw the bread away. Uh, and, um, and, didn't, and I had a way to dispose of the juice. In the Episcopal church, you can't throw it in the trash. It's, it's, it's heretical to throw it in the trash. We had a special bowl that had a pipe going down it that just led into the earth. So it wouldn't go through the sand, you know, sewage treatment plant and all that. And you would just pour the juice down, down that hole. Well, I had all these loaves of bread. <laughs> so uh, what I ended up doing is I spent a great deal of time after the service in the street 
breaking apart all of those loaves of bread into little pieces and feeding them to the birds in our memorial garden at the church. So when I came here, it's like, man, communion's really different here. <laughs> this is really, really different. Uh, and, um, but you know what I found out in both places? We all make it sacred. We all feel its importance. Though the difference is very, very wide, the similarity of sacredness is there. And I think that that's just absolutely wonderful. So that's what I picked up from service in the street. Then last week, seven of us had the joy of joining Greg in the first part of his sabbatical. And we did a pilgrimage down to the Lexington area of Kentucky, and we went to two places. And the first one we went to is called the Shaker Village at um, Pleasant Hill. And you can see our group up there. You'll recognize probably all of us. I will tell you, Cindy Lindstrom and I are in the back, and Steve Henry is actually a step below us. (laughs) But he sure came out looking tall (laughs) on a step below us. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. We spent probably, well... We spent almost 24 hours there, not quite 24 hours. Uh, And some of the 8 o'clock people after church today said that they've been down there too. It's a fantastic experience. I recommend it. I looked up the Shakers again. I'd seen a documentary on them. I've always been interested in their furniture, which is very very simple. But I really wanted to look up and be sure I knew my information well. Carolyn Henry actually could stand up here and do an entire talk on the Shakers because she knows a lot about them. Uh, The Shakers were a religious sect that came to America in search of religious freedom, which is what happened after 1776. People came here once we were a nation looking for religious freedom. The Shakers followed a woman named Mother Ann Lee to the United States in 1774, so that was actually during the Revolution. They established several colonies, and their governing principles included, first off, giving up all of your personal belongings. That's biblical. That's biblical. Celibacy. And agrarian communal living, which means that they were self-supporting. They, they lived off the land and uh, did it successfully. The term shakers was actually a term of, um, an un- uh, not a good term, a good name for members of a Quaker church that had broken off. They were dissenting. And they originally called themselves the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. And that's significant. Uh, they believed, they practiced a religion that was also a lifestyle. So they lived their faith 24-7, which is the goal for all of us. The members lived in gender-segregated dormitory-like housing, but came together to work in prayer. Like the Quakers, they believed in personal communication with a God who was both male and female, and in the ability to find and give voice to the inner light. Their expressions took the form of hymns and work songs, of which Simple Gifts, which I'm sure is probably even in our hymnal, is the most famous, as well as their rhythm, rhythmic swaying and dancing, 
when the Spirit moved them, which gave them the name the Quakers. It's interesting that they believed that Christ came in the second coming during their time, and they believed that it was embodied, that Christ was embodied in Mother Anne Lee, a woman. Very significant. But Jesus is also often referred to the Old Testament concept of wisdom, that Jesus was wisdom. And wisdom, if you read about it in the Old Testament, the pronoun is she. Very interesting. Uh, I wanted to show you a few pictures of the village. Uh, it was very relaxing there. We actually, this, is, this picture up here is where we spent the night. They restored the entire village, uh, and it's an ongoing effort, but this would have been a dormitory. It has two doors because the women would go in one door and the men would go in the other door and they'd go their separate ways. So I guess the women slept on one side of the building and the men slept on the other side of the building. And we spent the night there. We were all up on the second floor. Uh, We did not separate. Couples stayed together. Um, It was very hot down there. It was humid like you wouldn't believe so we were really thankful that uh, we had air conditioning in the building it was it was very pleasant and I have some pictures of the village itself if you'd like to see the Quakers owned a huge amount of land down there Uh, they did sell furniture that they built Uh, the, the the buildings were gorgeous in their simplicity uh, and then I think the picture after this, yeah, this, this was our room in, in that building, but it got cut off and I didn't, I didn't catch it in time. Shakers used to take these bands of wood, and you can see the bands. I've got to look. You can see the high band, wall band of wood, up real high in the rooms, and they would put pegs on them, probably about a foot apart, And you can see in that one picture, you can see the two regular lamps. That's modern-day stuff. But over in that corner, you can see something hanging there off the peg. That would have held a candle. That would be the light for the room. And it actually was a good light for our room. You could turn it on. They had this gorgeous mirror that I would have loved to have bought. And the mirror was hung on the pegs. And if you needed meeting space... Uh, or you needed extra space, I'll say it that way, you could even take your chairs and hang them on the pegs and then create a wider space to move around in. It was absolutely fascinating. What Greg said about the Shakers is probably what led to their downfall, because I do not believe that there are any more Shakers in existence. Um, What led to their downfall was that their belief system was so different from the usual customs of the time. You know, people didn't give up everything that belonged to them. People didn't lead celibate lives. And, of course, since they led celibate lives, there were no children. So they were very active in the abolitionist movement. I think the next picture, yeah, was a concert that we went to of African-American Quaker music. The only African-American in the picture is the director, but between songs she would tell the stories of the slaves that uh, the Quakers or the Shakers would uh, purchase their freedom. 
and they were free to join the Shakers. They were free to leave the Shakers, but they got their freedom. And they were very, very active in the abolitionist movement. The music was gorgeous. We had to leave during the concert because we had dinner reservations, and they were just getting ready to sing Amazing Grace, and we were all commenting that it was just an awful time to to leave that concert. But we ate in the village. We, ate, I'm sure, it was Quaker, or Quaker Shaker food, and uh, it was very, it was really good. I think I gained weight over the weekend, uh, but it was wonderful. It was very relaxing, enjoyable. Um, Felt like a vacation. So then, after we did the Shaker Village, we went on, drove through Lexington and went northeast, and we went... Oh, I'm. You, thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. I did the early service, too. I forgot about that. Um, I bought a necklace at... Um, around the Fountain Art Fair, and you can see a picture of it, and I'm wearing it today. And when we were in the village, I saw this as a symbol... And um, actually got a pair of earrings with the same symbol on it and, and a description of what it meant to the Shakers. Hands to work, hearts to God. And I thought, that's what this means to me. Hands to work, hearts to God. And I just, I just wear it all the time. It's really special to me. So to have, I, I told Jim that, you know, maybe in a prior life I was a shaker or something. I don't, I don't know. But um, I love the necklace, and, uh, and it was really, really great to, to see that it had some sort of meaning beyond what I had given it. So now we move on to Cane Ridge. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Cane Ridge, if you could show that first picture... That was the picture Greg sent to those of us that were going on the trip, as, long, as well as the description of, of what it was used for. Uh, it turns out that in the late 1700s, Daniel Boone suggested that a religious building be put in place out in the West. And it took me a little while to realize that back then, this was the West. Kentucky was the West, because I kept thinking, this isn't really the West, but it was back then. So the Presbyterian Church built this in 1796 with Presbyterian pastor Barton Stone in place. And in 1801 began the Great Revival Movement. And people from all over the place came. I mean, thousands of people. They were talking like twenty to 30,000 people came to these revivals. And a lot of them weren't Presbyterians. There were a lot of Methodists and a lot of Baptists. And at that time, the Presbyterian Church only allowed Presbyterians to take communion. Now, you should know the name Barton Stone if you're familiar with, with Christian Church Disciples of Christ history because he broke away from the Presbyterian Church and formed the Christian Church. And in the Christian church, everyone was welcome to, to come and have communion. And that's our birthplace, is Cane Ridge. So I've got a few pictures of Cane Ridge, uh, if you want to go ahead and start showing them. When we first got there, that's Cane Ridge. You can see, looks like a, well, it just looks like a regular building. And I, I said to Greg, I don't understand. I said, I... I I was looking for this kind of old wooden structure, and that's not it. And he said, oh, he said, it's there. 
He said, it's inside that building. Uh, so there it is. So they decided when they kept, started to restore this building and to keep it safe, they built a whole other building on top of it. And that's what you see from the road. So you can see inside, there's that log building that was built in the 1796. In the exterior building, there are some uh, stained glass pictures that show the history of the movement. This is just one of them. Uh, And um, then we move into the building itself. And it's pretty good sized. I can't remember. I think it said they held, what, 300 people? Would that be about right, or was it more than that? More? Um, It was huge. And slaves had to crawl in through the second floor window to sit in there. And that would have been quite a hike. It was a pretty large structure. Let's move on. There's Greg at the pulpit. To me, it seemed huge. I don't know if it was any higher than this. It sure looked to be higher than that, maybe because of just its girth. Uh, And our docent who led us on this trip said, you know, afterwards, each of us should go up there and and stand there and see what it looks like. And you're up there pretty high. So we did a church service. So last Sunday, Greg noted that you guys were here and you were having a service and that we were thinking of all of you and that we were going to have our own service. And we did. So go ahead to the next picture. We had a wonderful accompanist. Um, we ought to use her sometime again. Um, but she plays with just her right hand, but that was Kay Long. And she played the music, and we sang along with her. And then we had, well, we had prayers with Greg, but we also had communion. And, you know, it was just such an experience, and I'm sure that the rest of the folks that did this trip felt the same way. It was like, I don't know, being part of something very, very, very special in that moment. And, uh, and then afterwards, the docent talked to us and you know, told us more about the history. After our service was over, we went to the cemetery, which was right next to this building. And this is the tombstone for Barton Stone. He did move away from the Cane Ridge Church, uh, but his desire was when he died was that that was where he wanted to be buried. And so this is his tombstone right here. And then this was another memorial stone put up in, in his honor. So uh, it's kind of neat to, to have seen that history. So that was last weekend. So we had the service in the street, and then we had this trip. And to see things that were very different, and yet in the same way very much the same. And it goes back to that idea of that vision that, Peter had to see three times to get. And that is that there is a lot of growth when we understand diversity. When we understand that sometimes different people do things differently, we are still all part of that large pizza. And somehow when we bring all of our pizzas together, we get it. So let me close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, We, as your beloved children, pray that we will live our lives according to your will. May we recognize, among other believers, our commonalities and to accept our differences 
realizing that each of us is one slice of a very large pizza. It is by uniting together that we can truly reflect your vision for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.